0: Please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, which is found in Exodus chapter 16, Exodus 16, verses 4 to 12. Our sermon passage is John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, John 6, 1 to 15, but first we will read from Exodus chapter 16, beginning at verse 4 and reading through verse 12. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God. Please give your full attention to God's Word as it is now read to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in My law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily, Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now turning to John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough to eat uh, for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for what it teaches us. We are thankful, dear Lord, that you show us that you feed your people, that you take care of us. And Lord, certainly we are Thankful for the physical food that you provide for us so that our bodies may be nourished. But even more importantly, dear Lord, we're thankful that you feed us spiritually. We're thankful, dear Lord, that you give us more than enough to sustain our souls. But we pray that as your word is now preached, that it would indeed prove to be food for those who hear. So please do, Lord, bless the one who preaches, and bless those who hear. May you be glorified, O Lord, and your body, your congregation, be edified through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now you will remember from your own reading of the Gospels that throughout the four Gospels, Jesus regularly has run-ins with the religious leadership, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees in his day. There were conflicts with them. They saw him as a threat. He taught as one who had authority, and they didn't like it because they saw him as competition. And that's the case in the preceding chapter to our sermon passage today. And so just a little bit of a recap of chapter 5, which we did not read, but which provides background for the passage this morning. In chapter 5, Jesus had a confrontation with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem because he healed a man on the Sabbath, and they didn't like it, and they said it was not lawful for him to do this. And so they challenged Jesus about it. They confronted him, and when they did so, in his response to them, he made himself equal with God. Now, the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy in that exchange, and which, if it were proven true that he was indeed blaspheming, this was an offense that required the death penalty. Now, because their challenge of Jesus was, in effect, a trial, albeit an informal trial, they had not hauled him before the council, Jesus in his defense brings up a number of witnesses to bear testimony about the fact that he was indeed the son of God. He was right in making himself equal with God. And so he reminded them of John the Baptist's words about him. He pointed out to them his miraculous signs that he had been publicly performing since he began ministering openly. He referenced to them how his father had been testifying as to who he was, though they had never heard his voice or seen him. And then he brought out the ultimate witness, one that they can't deny, one that they held up with highest esteem, God's word, and specifically uh, the books of Moses, the law, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. These were uh, the, the, the books that the Pharisees especially held in such high esteem. And Jesus told them in chapter 5, toward the end of chapter 5, that Moses, the Old Testament figure they most revered because he was the bringer, the deliverer of the law, that Moses wrote about him. And that if they did not believe in Jesus, if they didn't believe that he was God who came in the flesh, then they did not believe Moses. Now Moses is very much in the background of chapter 6, in which the very next thing that John writes about is Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee and a large crowd of people following him. And as we find out in chapter 6, these people, all of these people, this multitude of people, they followed Jesus, but they had made no plans for their own provision, As we work our way through the sermon this morning, I would ask you to to consider this thought. That Jesus Christ, who is greater than Moses, leads his people from slavery, sin, and death into the promised land of salvation. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ, who is greater than Moses, leads his people from slavery, sin, and death into the promised land of salvation. Today's sermon has two parts. The first is wilderness testing, and the second is that nothing may be lost. Again, wilderness testing, that's the first part of the sermon, and that nothing may be lost is the second. So let's turn our attention to the first part of the sermon, wilderness testing. Now, without being overly specific, John tells his readers in verse 1 of chapter 6 that after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't say how he went. It doesn't say if he went across the Sea of Galilee by boat or if he walked along the southern shore or the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to get to the other side. It just says after this, after the events of chapter 5, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And after this, it it simply tells us that sometime after the confrontation that Jesus had with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, he went back to the north, and he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which John tells us is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. The other side of the Sea of Galilee is the eastern side of the sea. That's the side that's uh, not predominantly Jewish in its makeup. The western side is where most of the Jewish people in Galilee lived. Now, you'll also remember from your reading of the Gospels that the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they all include a passage about Jesus' testing in the wilderness, in which after his baptism by John, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days without food or water, and during the time that he's there, he's tempted by the devil. And those 40 days are analogous to Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings, in which they were tested by God. In the case of Jesus' 40 days, he stands in the place of Israel. He successfully accomplishes what they could not. He completely trusts upon and depends upon God, his Father. And he does so without grumbling. He doesn't complain. He does so without food or drink for 40 days. And so the emphasis in the synoptic Gospels is on Jesus' humanity as he identifies with Israel in their wilderness trials. But the Holy Spirit wishes to emphasize Jesus' divinity in the Gospel of John. And that's so often why you have in John's Gospel this emphasis on the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so in our passage, which is reminiscent of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and ensuring that they have food to sustain them, Jesus leads Israel, in this case 5,000 men of Israel, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and then miraculously feeds them there. Now verse 2 says that this massive crowd of people follow Jesus as he makes his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And John adds There that they are following Jesus because they saw the signs, they saw the miraculous healings, they saw the wondrous works that Jesus did for the sick. And the people followed Jesus not because they believed in him as Lord and Savior or as Messiah, but because he had the power to heal. They either wanted to be healed or they wanted to see him do uh, these miraculous healings. Now certainly their regard for Jesus was higher than that of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They didn't look down upon him the way that the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the scribes did. But we have to say that for the vast majority of the crowds, their faith had not reached the level of saving faith. And verse 3 says that Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down with with his disciples. Once again, Moses is evoked here as this resembles his receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And verse 4 says that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. And the Passover feast was, of course, a celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt uh, through the help of Moses. Now, this is the second Passover that has been mentioned in John's gospel. The first was in chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple. So a year has elapsed from uh, what took place in chapter 2. Verse 5 says that Jesus lifted up his eyes, and when he did so, he saw a multitude of people coming toward them. And we find out in verse 10 that there were 5,000 men who were undoubtedly accompanied by their wives and children. And so one commentator, D.A. Carson, says that the total number of people could have exceeded 20,000 people. Far more than the normal 5,000 we think about when we read this passage. So this massive group of people are coming at Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus says to Philip in verse 5, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? These people in some ways are following Jesus like a herd of cattle. They haven't given thought to how in the world in this remote place on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, they're going to feed themselves, they're going to feed their wives, they're going to feed their children. Now John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus asks this question of Philip to test him. Because he knew what he was going to do already. But Philip doesn't know that he's being tested. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you might be somewhat off and enjoy tests when you were in school. Uh, back when you were younger, those of you who still in school, you, you might like having to undergo tests, having to take tests. But I certainly was not one of those. But tests in school are intended to show where a person is in his or her understanding. But Jesus already knew where Philip was in his understanding about who Jesus was. Jesus didn't need to to test him to find that out. So what is the purpose of this test that Jesus was putting Philip through? Well, tests or trials can also be used to bring about a desired result. How many of you, when you were taking a test, actually learned a few things that you didn't know prior to taking it? And God has designed us in such a way that we learn as a result of our trials, as a result of our tests. When was the last time, probably it wasn't too recently for most of us, but when was the last time you were around a crowd of 20,000 or more people? Now imagine having to think about how you would have to feed them all on the fly, no preparation beforehand. These kinds of things have to be considered, and yet these people didn't seem to think about it at all. And so Philip, in in responding to Jesus' testing question, he he says in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A 200 denarii was about eight months' wages for a laborer. They didn't have enough in their, their money bag, in the treasury, to pay for food for all of these people. But even if they did have enough money, however much that might take to buy food for all of these people, there was no place anywhere near that had that much bread. The eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, as sparsely populated as the western side was, the eastern side was even uh, less populated. There were no towns big enough to provide food, bread, for that many people. But Andrew chimes in in verse 9. Andrew says that there was a boy who had five loaves and... Uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. But Andrew makes it clear, even as he says this, that he doesn't believe there's any way that it's possible for that to be enough to feed all of these people. Let's think about this for a moment. The disciples have now been with Jesus for two Passovers. They've been with Jesus for over one year, and possibly well over a year by this time. They've witnessed... Christ's miraculous signs. They've seen the amazing things that he has done. They've heard him make himself equal with God. Now, being aware of this and knowing what God did for his people in the Old Testament, the disciples should have been capable of at least having confidence that Jesus could feed all of these people, even if they didn't know how. But none of them expresses that confidence. None of them them expresses that faith in Jesus. And so, sadly, we see these two disciples who can be taken to represent all 12 disciples, fail the test. Their sinful human limitations prevented them from trusting that Jesus could provide for 20,000 people. They thought the problem that they were facing was too big, even for God. And in this case, the disciples showed that they weren't too different from us. We're all too similar to the disciples. Our problems can get so big at times, that we get to the point where we think that they're too big for God to handle. Jesus was showing them, just as he is showing us, that he is God. And because he is God, there is nothing that he cannot take care of. There's nothing that's too big for him. And that brings us to the second and the final point of the sermon today, that nothing may be lost. Andrew has just told Jesus and the rest of the disciples about the boy with the five loaves of bread and the two fish. And then Jesus tells the disciples in verse 10 to have the people sit down on the grass. He's sitting up on the hill, they're down below him, and they sit down. And in verse 11 we read that Jesus took the loaves of bread and he gave thanks and he distributed the bread and the fish to those who were seated. And verse 11 says that everyone got as much as they wanted they were able to eat as much as they want. Now, sometimes I don't know if you're like I am. Sometimes on fellowship meal Sundays, I, I watch who ends up at the head of the line. Not, not in front of the people celebrating birthdays and anniversaries, but, but the ones after those five or six or so people who are celebrating birthdays and, and anniversaries. And, and almost always, it's our, our teenage boys, our, our, our young men of the congregation. It, it just is. And, and those of you who were teenage boys at one time in your life, you, you, you were there too at the front of the line whenever there was a line forming for food. But I get a little nervous uh, when I see that because I wonder if there's going to be any food left for those who <laughs> come after. They eat so much. Undoubtedly in this crowd of 20,000 people, if, if we have a handful of teenage boys in our small church... Then how many teenage boys were in that crowd who were capable of eating not just one or two loaves of bread and, and a couple of fish, but even more? And we read here that there was plenty for everybody. For even the smallest who might eat only a meager amount to the largest, and the teenage boys and everyone else. They had their full. And Jesus, uh, when they were all full, Jesus uh, says in verse 12, To his disciples gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Paul understood as he wrote Ephesians chapter 3, what our passage illustrates, that, God, that as God, Jesus can do far more than we're capable of asking or even imagining. The disciples were not capable of imagining that Jesus could take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 20,000 people. But if they'd stopped to think for a moment, they would have realized that God fed the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. And there were over 600,000 men, not counting women and children, when they left Egypt. Over those 40 years, more children were born and became young boys, teenage boys. God rained down bread from heaven. He sent quail so that they would have meat. If he could do this, then feeding 20,000 people in a mountain by the Sea of Galilee was not a problem. But notice that not only is Jesus interested in feeding people, but he also wanted all of the leftovers to be gathered up so that none would be lost. And so we read after Jesus gave this command to his disciples, the disciples gathered up 12 baskets of pieces of bread. These baskets serve as proof that everyone had eaten until they were full. And the leftovers also show the superabundance of food that Jesus gave to these people. But the leftover fragments of bread, and especially Jesus' command to the disciples to gather them up so that nothing would be lost, shows something about the character of Jesus Christ and ultimately about God himself. It shows the great care that Jesus takes so that nothing would be wasted. Imagine that. Jesus had just made enough food From five loaves of bread and two fish to feed over 20,000 people. And he was concerned that none of these scraps, none of these fragments of bread would be lost, would be wasted. Jesus certainly could have made more, but he chose to gather up the leftovers instead. His frugality was exemplary, something that we perhaps all should try to emulate But this detail wasn't included in the Gospel of John to spur us on to greater frugality. Some some of us maybe could uh, stand with a little less frugality. If Jesus had enough of a concern for the leftover pieces of bread that he commands his disciples to go through the multitude of people and gather them up, how much more concern does he have for the people he has come to gather and take home? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's an example of how Jesus cares about the little things. And if he cares about the little things, how much more will he care about those things that are truly great and important to him? Now when I was young, when I was uh, growing up as a child living right next door to my grandparents and my great aunt who lived with them, I could never understand why they were so careful not to waste things like wrapping paper and aluminum foil. How many of you, perhaps some of you do this yourselves, but how many of you remember your parents, your grandparents, they would, after the presents were opened, they, 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 would, they would take the wrapping, don't shred the wrapping paper, open it carefully, and they would fold it, so that it could be reused. I didn't understand this behavior until I began to understand a little bit better the Great Depression, and what that did to our grandparents, or our great-grandparents, how it indelibly shaped their generation's character. Most of us, I would dare say, have never experienced deprivation in the way that our grandparents and our great-grandparents did. And so we throw away things without a second thought. As a human being, Jesus most likely grew up in poverty and understood what it was like to go without. And so from a human standpoint, it makes sense for him to... And and in that culture, it makes sense for them not to allow any food to go to waste. But before Jesus was human, he was God. His concern that those scraps of bread not be wasted shows that nothing is too small for him to notice. Nothing is too little for him to have a concern about it. It's reminiscent of the hymn, His Eyes on the Sparrow, the chorus of which says, His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Brothers and sisters, you can trust that if he has a concern for such a small thing as leftover pieces of bread, then he most certainly will have a great concern for sinners who are in desperate need of salvation. And we don't know what was done with the leftovers, but it may well be that Jesus wanted to ensure that he and his disciples had something to eat for their next meal. And verse 14 says that when the people saw the sign that he had done the feeding of the mul- this multitude of people, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And verse 15 says that Jesus perceived that day that they wanted to, to take him by force and make him king. And so Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. These people saw something about Jesus. This sign indicated something about Jesus. It pointed to a greater reality that they were not yet perceiving of course the sign showed that he was God who had come in the flesh but the people as they saw the sign they misread the sign they misinterpreted the sign they called Jesus the prophet this was a reference to the prophet like Moses found in Deuteronomy 18:18 18, 18. they were making these connections and they thought a second Moses had come Deuteronomy 18:18 uh, promises God promises Moses that he will raise up another prophet like Moses, a great prophet. Jesus most certainly was a prophet, and he is the the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.18. He is the one who God promised to Moses would come after Moses. So the people did get that right. And Jesus is also a king, the one true king who rules over all. So their impulse was right in wanting to make him king of Israel. But what they failed to grasp is that Jesus is also a priest. He is the intercessor for his people. He stands between us and God his Father. And so for him to be taken and made king would have, would have taken away his ability to function as a priest for his people. It would have taken away his ability to minister directly to those in need. It would have, uh, it would have ended if he had been made king. He would have been immersed in the political and military considerations of trying to lead Israel and rising up against Rome. Now, Jesus would most definitely be crowned as king, but not now. Not at this point in his ministry. At this point, he had to ensure that not one of those who had been given to him would be lost. He had to make sure that each and every soul would be gathered up and brought to him And so he had to continue to perform these kinds of signs, which he will perform over and over again. The first 10 or 11 chapters of, of the Gospel of John, this is known as the Book of Signs because he performs so many. And so, yes, he's a prophet like Moses, and yet he's greater than Moses. Among those, he leads to the promised land. There will be no rebellious uprising where thousands fell in a day as they did with Moses. When Jesus leads you to your heavenly home, you won't grumble, you won't complain, you won't know sorrow or deprivation any longer. Jesus Christ came to lead his people safely home. Every detail of our salvation has been planned out and it has been accounted for. There is no contingency that Christ Jesus has left unconsidered. And what awaits for you brothers and sisters is a feast that you cannot imagine. If you think that you have had feasts along the way while you've been in this wilderness, then the feast which is the great marriage supper of the lamb, it is far beyond. So far beyond all that you could ask or imagine. So just wait until Jesus brings you into his banquet hall. That day awaits That's the day that we look forward to as followers of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are thankful that you provide. That you give us what we need. We're thankful that you have provided for our well-being. For our spiritual well-being that you've given us your word to feast upon, that you've given us the sacraments to sustain us, that you've given us prayer as a means, O Lord, where we can worship you as we communicate with you. But We pray that you would teach us to be grateful. We pray, Lord, that we would celebrate with thanksgiving, not just one day out of the year, but each and every day. We pray, dear Lord, that we would give thanks unto you all the days of our lives. We thank you, dear Lord, that no detail is too small for you to take notice of and take action for. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.